Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Exhibitions always provide opportunities for seeing works of art with fresh eyes. Rarely, however, have the comparisons of much-beloved paintings, such as those brought together in Vermeer and the Masters of Genre Painting, Inspiration and Rivalry, yielded so many insights about artistic achievement and the creative process. The landmark exhibition examines the artistic exchanges among Johannes Vermeer and his contemporaries from the mid-1650s to around 1680, when they reached the height of their technical ability and mastery of genre painting or depictions of daily life. In this lecture, held on January 7, 2018, Arthur K. Wheelock, Jr. discusses some of these revelations and how they help explain the enduring impact of Vermeer's painting. My name is Arthur Wheelock, and I um, have had the great opportunity to work at the gallery for a lot of years, as some of you know. And um, this show has been one of the most exciting of all of them. It's brought back many connections to this wonderful artist, Vermeer, but also showing Vermeer in the context of his contemporaries. It is a show that I think some of us who worked in the field have dreamed about having for many, many years, but you know, finally it happened, and it happened in, in certainly in large part because of wonderful collaborations with colleagues from Dublin and from Paris, the National Gallery in London, uh, Ireland, um, Adrian Weibour and Blaise Ducos from the Louvre. And together we came up with a, an idea of bringing together these um, great genre painters, a lot of part of the 17th century. And uh, they are, they're relationships that many of us knew to a certain extent, but I think in every respect we've learned enormously from the juxtapositions of these paintings. And so today I have a kind of a, a challenging approach, a thing that I'm trying, I'm not sure I've really succeeded in doing, but I've, what I'd like to do is tell a little bit about the show's about for those who haven't seen it. Anybody here not seen the show? All right, so there are a couple outliers. Get upstairs right now, forget this. <laughs> um, don't miss it, by all means. It's here to the 21st, don't miss it. It is really an opportunity to, to learn, to think, to, to discover all sorts of things. And I have had the great opportunity of, of being here and watching the show, uh, being engaged in it uh, pretty much on a daily basis. And so it's been a, an opportunity to learn lots of things that I had um, thought I knew and different approaches and um, to looking that I want to try to encourage you to do as well. So what I'm going to do is briefly talk about the show's about, but then what I would like also to do is to get you to, to free you from the tyranny of the installation. <laughs> it is a great installation. It makes everything so nice and neat and clean and tidy. You still know exactly that, okay, this group is all about ladies standing there as the Vermeer on the, on the outside, on the right, who is getting ready for the day, getting, doing her toilet. So that's, a, or the lady in the left of the Turbork looking in the mirror and in reflection. So there are groups of mirrors, the groups of ladies at the toilet, groups of ladies writing a letter, the geographer and astronomer. These are amazingly interesting groupings in that they show artists did look at what each other were doing and they were somehow reflecting on it. Um, 
But what I'd like to do t today what I, with you a bit is what I've been doing myself is to go between these groups a bit, to look at one side of the room and the other side, and then look at the next room, and then think about things you've seen and how that can go, you can go back and forth and learn from that experience. So there's the groupings that make sense. I mean, you can follow that logic. I think the installation's incredibly um, useful in that way, and I credit my wonderful colleagues here at the gallery um, in the design department, I head by Mark Lighthouser but not, and Donna Kirk, who have helped me with that, and my colleagues in my own department. Um, and Henriette uh, Rahusen is here today um, to have really helped formulate how we want to show that, uh, that story. Now, I'm going to start off by showing a bit of that story and then sort of leave that story a bit and then focus on two particular individuals or two groups of individuals. One group is the artist who painted the painting on the left was Gerard Terborg. And it's, I'm talking about Gerard Terborg, who is to me, this painting, this exhibition should be not called Vermeer and Massajon, but it should be Terborg and Massajon painting. This Terborg is really, if it were not for Terborg and his half-sister Hesina, so the Gerard Hesina Inc., that I don't think the show would have happened. So I'm gonna talk about Gerard Hesina Inc. a bit um, and why they are so important. And then secondly, focus on Vermeer and say why, given all these artists who look so much alike, he still looks so different. What is it so different about him? And that is a kind of an ongoing fascination of all of us who come through that show. This is an amazing show, amazing paintings of all sorts of artists. But in the end, you say, hmm, yeah, Vermeer's pretty good. So, <laughs> so anyhow. All right, so one of the places, I, the place I'm gonna start today is with the second room of the exhibition, octagonal room, where we have six paintings. Um, and on this wall, I'm showing the installation of the wall of two wonderful paintings by Gerrit Dow uh, on either side, flanking a painting by Vermeer. And this is two of those paintings, the Vermeer on the right here and the Gerrit Dow on the left. And Gerrit Dow is, uh, should be better known to all of us than he, than he seems to be because we had a monographic show on Dow some years ago and he is an incredible artist. He was, in fact, the most expensive artist in Europe in the 17th century. No artist commanded the prices that Gerrit Dow did. He was famous in the Netherlands. He was famous throughout Europe in courtly circles as well as with wealthy private individuals. Well, it's clear, um, before we get too far into that story, that there is a relationship, a visual relationship between these two paintings. So this is a lady at the Virginal by Vermeer that's in the National Gallery in London, and this is a Gerard Dow's painting of a lady at the Clavichord that is in Dulwich College, a beautiful small museum outside of London. So here you have in both instances a lady playing an instrument who is looking out at the viewer, there is light coming into the room. There is another instrument. There is a curtain on the wall. And there's an interior space. I mean, basically, there are so many similarities, it's almost impossible to think that one didn't know the paintings of the other. And in this case, because of the chronology of the paintings, we know that the Tao was painted first, and the Vermeer second. So it's certainly 
has to be that Vermeer saw the Tao and that Vermeer only painted this painting in response in some way or another in reaction to or knowledge of the Tao painting. Now, part of the question we had in this exhibition going into it is how did these artists all know each other? And they came from different cities, so Delft is where Vermeer comes from. But there are artists in the show who come from Dordrecht, from The Hague, Leiden, Harlem, Amsterdam, Deventer, there's Rotterdam, we've sort of forgot, but he's, <laughs> Rotterdam's also part of it. But anyhow, they are from all these different places. Of course, the Netherlands is pretty small. It's about the size of Maryland. So um, is, as a small country, it is, um, it's, you know, it's not impossible that they would have known each other. In fact, it's very likely because we know that there were artists in this show, there were teacher and student relationships, there were drinking buddy relationships, there were friends of relationship, they signed documents together, There's, but not a lot of documentation, in fact. But the <clears throat> two cities that represented in that comparison, the Vermeer and the Dow, are artists from Delft and Leiden. So today, if you go on a train from Amsterdam to Harlem, it's about 15 minutes give you some framework. Harlem to, the, to Leiden is about half an hour. The Hague is about half an hour. Delft is another 15 minutes. Deventer is about three quarters of an hour. I mean, it's that small on the train. Now, in the 17th century, they didn't have trains, but they did have other means of transportation. And one of the means of transportation is what's called a trekvart, a little boat that is pulled along by a horse along the river. All these towns are connected by rivers uh, or canals. And I have a wonderful book at home by John Ray, who was an English traveler. He went to the Netherlands in 1663. In 1663, he talks about going from Dordrecht to Rotterdam. Um, and the bell would ring about three times a day, and their boat would be leaving. And he would be from Dordrecht to Rotterdam um, in five hours. And then, he'd, then there would be an hourly boat from Rotterdam to Delft. It would take them two hours. And then be an hourly boat from Delft to The Hague, one hour, to go to Amsterdam. So you can imagine, it's one hour from, uh, it's an hour and a half, probably max, from Delft to, to Leiden on uh, one of these trek farts. They are going on a regular schedule. They are better than Amtrak. <laughs> Truly, I mean, they were bells when they would come, when they left, and when they arrived. I mean, it was just, it was there. And you can see there was lots of people. Sometimes you find animals on them too, but anyhow, mostly they're people. And that's, this is a wonderful little scene of a, along the Amstel River near, near Amsterdam. But they were all over. They were all over in a very regular form of transportation. So when Dao was working in Leiden, he is, he is famous for his very fine manner of painting. It's called Feinschilder, Feinschilderei, and these paintings are so detailed that you have to get up close to them to really look at. And he was, and, and he, paid by the, he was paid by the hour, so that's why his paintings were so expensive, you know, it was five, and here's this little story about him having a painting, look, somebody came and said, wow, that's really amazing, and the guy was work, working in a little broom in the lower right corner, he said, well, yeah, I only got three days left with this broom, you know, so that was pretty much the way he worked. But he, so famous was he that he, Herod Dow, was the first man, as far as I could tell, man or woman, in the history of mankind, to have a monographic exhibition, 1665. 
You went to Leiden, you could see 27 paintings by Dow in the home of a collector. You paid your couple guilders that went off to help the poor, and you came in and there was this incredible array of Dow's paintings. The interesting thing about that exhibition, beyond the fact that it exists, is that of those 27 paintings, 22 of them were in cases. That meant you see the real boxes, basically. And sometimes they're painted on the outside, but mostly not. So to see a Dow painting, you had to get up close and open those doors. And so when you open those doors, then you can see, oh my God, how does that guy paint that? Got every little thread in that, in that tapestry. This is the detail of this up here. You can see he knew you had to get close, so he created a means to force you close to that painting. So this is an essence, I mean, this is a, the extreme, but this is something that we'll see in the show over and over again. Artists simulating reality. These artists want to make their objects, their space, their light, everything about them as real as you could possibly imagine. And this man or this fane schilder is, is showing the detail. There were different ways of doing it, but this was the essence of what Dow did in Leiden and his student, Franz von Mears, likewise. So this is, a, this, is a, this is something to go and say, look at and wonder about in that show. There are great examples by Dow in this exhibition. Go up and pretend like you're opening those doors and you're getting up close and looking at these paintings. Now, when you do that, you can see, Oh, the beautiful light coming in, all the shimmering qualities of the fabrics, the, the sheen on the instrument. You start to see light, 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 the way he's exploring light and the different effects that, of light all the way through. But you also, when you get up close and look at this painting, you, you now have, in fact, a gorgeous young woman looking right out at you. So it is not just to see the fabrics, you are being engaged in a very direct way with this young woman playing a very quiet and very lyrical instrument. And not only you be engaged, you're being invited in because there is your instrument. There is your wine in the cooler. There's a little birdcage up there that says, well, I'm interested in love. I'm a little bit happy to be protected by the cage right now, but maybe someday that door will open. In fact, there are paintings where the door is already open. So there are these little elements, the symbolic elements that are intertwined into this realism. So Vermeer sees this, and Vermeer goes up and opens that door and says, oh my God, look at this painting. And then he goes later on to paint something comparable, but look at what the difference is. So this is where I start to look at differences. You know, those, you saw those slides side by side, the same size, oh yeah, cool. But Vermeer's this size, the Dow's that size. So start thinking now about, okay, how is this thing seen in real life at, in the 17th century, and then what effect does it make to be small and much larger? The other thing that's very interesting is that when you look at that detail, that small little painting got all that detail, Vermeer does a curtain, but look at how abstract it is. He's painting it big enough that he could put as much detail as he wants in there, but he doesn't. 
right here you see that that realism that is essential to Tao, essential to every artist in that show, except for Vermeer, is not going to be explored in the same way. Vermeer looks real. We've always admired Vermeer and his realism, but in fact, there's an abstraction to Vermeer that we have to sort of come to terms with, come to think about. What is that? What, why, why the hell do you paint like that? You have all these models around you, and yet you do something quite different. So that's, that's part of what I want to explore today. So here's the other side of that same room. Do you have the lady, and these are all ladies with a lute, focused with a Vermeer in the middle with, from the Met. And then here we have a Van Mieris, a student of Dow's on the right, who is similar, but actually she's playing the instrument. And here's Eglon Vandenier from Munich on the left. So we have Edinburgh, you know, so we had these, these wonderful ways in which collectors wanted to share their treasures to help tell these stories. So it's very interesting to look at that Vermeer, and here we have this lady, she's not playing, as I said, but she's tuning, so that she is actually carefully listening. And that's something to think about in these instrumental scenes, listening. Think about the sounds, I mean, they're not just visual experiences. How do you, what are the sounds that are coming, or what are sounds, what sounds are not coming? What is happening in that other central realm of, of your experience with these works of art? She is kept very much away from us. She's behind this table, behind this dark chair with, this, with the lion-head finial. There she is quietly gazing out the window as she's listening. So this whole feeling of listening, quietude, is part of this experience. And what is also very important in here is the geometry. We'll talk about this a quick. That she, this instrument comes up this way, this sort of diagonal sh shape between the shapes. That large map is there. Of maps of, of, of Europe, of all the you see that's Europe there, and all the kind of coastlines of Europe are, are being represented. But that map holds her in space, so that there is a ge underlying geometry to Vermeer's works that is also quite essential. And that geometry becomes clearer because over and over again we see Vermeer painting these figures against a light background. And he is putting objects on that wall. There is very often flat element to the Vermeer's paintings. They're not the geometry, not the, el the three-dimensional elements, beds and whatever that you see in the other interiors. It's all very much within geometric planes. But that is this quietude that you're down behind, light comes in, shines on her face, a very stark contrast of light and dark that, that gives this painting this wonderful power. Now contrast that and look at these wonderful small paintings on either side with a Van Maris and Eglon Vandernier, and there you have ladies at the front. They're not behind anything. So you get to see the shimmering fabrics. They are showing off. These artists are a lot of show-offs, basically. Uh, they like to show off. Oh my God, what they can do with the materials and fabrics is unbelievable. They just, you know, the shimmering, the feeling of light coming in, and that, that is essence of that, those fabrics are capturing those qualities. That, is what artists or the collectors would say, wow. And that's what we all should say, wow. How on earth do you paint it that it looks like that? 
And it's interesting that with the, the lady who's, these things now you start to look at, you start to think carefully. So she is playing. So she is actually looking at her music. She is also tuning. So she's looking beyond the music. These subtle little things, and this is, these are things you don't pick up right away. You're this lonely and this second, unless you're a lot cleverer than I am. It's, it takes me a long time to see these little differences. Oh, wow, there's a kind of feeling that's a, a different. It's a, she's tuning. She's not playing. Oh, yeah, look at the difference, the way she's looking. And, but what I love of these paintings, and I think I, one of these little things that I found all the way through the show, now really interesting, are the edges of books. Oh, my gosh, look at those. They are curled over, they're beaten, they're ragged. He could have painted that flat. He could have painted that smooth. No, but what he's showing then is the activity, the real life quality of figures moving those pages, that feeling there, those activities, that part of the realism, that sort of ongoing realism of what they're, they're after in these paintings. So go through the show and look at the edges of books and pages. Look at Tao and the astronomer. It's a totally different room, but that's all I want you to do. Go find something like this. Go find something like that. And then, at the same time, I'm going to use this for a couple purposes. Tao, who we saw before with a, with a painting from Dulwich, this is from the Getty, is a master of candlelight as well as daylight. Candlelight. So there is a treatise in the 17th century by Samuel van Hoogstraden, and that treatise has pages upon pages of how one paints light, how one looks at daylight, how one looks at the, the way light comes into a room, but then how one looks at candlelight, what, how one studies the flame. What is the color of the flame at the bottom, and the middle, and the top? What is the reflective light on the face? How does you get candlelight reflecting off glass in, in the way it is on the hourglass? How does it, how do you get it? Look at this, I love this. This is the thing, one of my little discoveries here. He's holding that candle in his fingers and look at the, on the shadow, the light going right through the hole where he's, how cool is that, really? I mean, really, he's got to look. How, when he, there's a liquid here, and the, the light hits the backside of the liquid, and then the, reflect, the reflected light on the, the I mean, just the, the, the you know, you, know I, you spend hours with this amazing little painting, just looking how he does. So it's not just random. He doesn't just sort of does, do that. No, he studied it. He studied those light effects, because that is part of that realism that he's trying to get at of this you know, astronomer at nighttime studying his text uh, with a candlelight to, to looking out of the window to the stars. I mean, that is a kind of active engagement in your intellectual activities is what Tao is trying to do, but he makes all that real by the way he does light in the figure and the body language. Well, look at this lovely painting by Gerard Tuborg. And this is one of the great treasures in the show was this painting from the Maritz house where Harad's half-sister, Hasina, who we'll talk about a lot later on, is writing a letter. Or maybe it's not a letter. We don't know. But she's writing. But look at it. But you, you start to think about, she looks like she's writing a letter, but then you look at the, t carefully, it's already been folded. And it's already text below the, the pen. 
So is she editing? What is she doing? You know, whatever. But there's a bed in the background, so maybe it's a love letter. Normally these are love letters, and like, likely is. But he doesn't do this just accidentally. None of these artists do any of this stuff accidentally. They're thinking their, their thought processes going on. We may not understand what it all means, but they're there. They're there for sure, but they are, leave clues of something that we're thinking about. But even then, in the subtlety of, of, the, of the edge, look at the edge of that paper right there. And the shadow, and the, I mean, oh, Josh. And then the fabrics, the, the sort of, so what he does here is he has her writing at a, at a wooden table with a, that had had a, one of these wonderful rug type things on uh, covering it, pushed aside. So again, a little bit of an activity level. It's not just the, the page so much as pushed aside. So you are getting a sense of time, an experience of, that he is adding to that. It's not just accidental there. That is part of this whole process of, of realism. And then the beautiful reflections. You'll find if that's something else. Go look for reflections. They'll be everywhere. You will, you'll look at a painting for 20 minutes and say, oh my gosh, there's a little reflection. Look at the way and that, what that does when you experience that work. So one of the great paintings of the show, another one from, from our, our colleagues in, in Dublin, is the Gabriel Metsu. And I'm going to use this for multiple purposes. Because here you have letters. Um, there's a, in the paper. Here you have the maid holding the lead envelope, as it were. And that becomes the location where Metsu signs it. So it's, been, you know, it's added emphasis on that. Look at the edge of the, of the letter with the light coming through. I mean, again, using the daylight, all so, so the interior space. One of the fascinating things is she's sitting on this wooden little platform, which is to keep her off the cold mar uh, tile floors. And there's a little heater underneath there. She's got a foot, uh, or one of her shoes, the slippers off. A lot of empty slippers in the show. What's that all about? I still not really sure, but, I, I, but whatever. It has, as with most things in Dutch, it has to do with sex somehow or other. We're not sure exactly how. But uh, one thing we, is fascinating to look on the floor. All sorts of have slipper, but you have, what do you have over here? You have a thimble. Why on earth do you have a thimble over there on the, you know, off on the floor? Well, probably it tells you that letter came unexpectedly and she jumped up in the thimble, you know, she was busy with her, her needlework there. So little things that seem accidental are not accidental. And then the maid, well, first, now before we get to the maid, the dog, of course, the, the dogs know everything. And, and these, the, if you want to know what the painting's about, go to the dogs. There are lots of dogs you can enjoy, dogs and all sorts of activities in this show. But the, the, the dog is pointing toward the maid, not the dog is actually the dog of the mistress, but she's pointing in this direction because that's where the storyline really is. And that is partly due to Metsu, but it's partly because the maid is pulling back the curtain covering the painting and there is a stormy sea, so you have the whole symbolism, again, of paintings on the back wall and what they mean. One of the things I love with this painting is that reflection. There are so many mirrors in the show. I, this, nothing, something else I've been fixated on, fascinated with. Mirrors, look at mirrors. What are they telling you? There are all sorts of th things about mirrors that the artists are exploring. This One of the, I've never understood why you don't see the back of her head in this mirror. 
And if, but I finally figured out, this is one of my most exciting, exciting things uh, as far as I'm concerned, that the only way that makes sense is if you stand to the right of the painting, sort of over here, and you look at that painting from this angle, that geometry is actually a reflection of the window to the left. So here's an artist who thought carefully about that mirror and what the reflection is. And the reason this is of some significance is this painting is part of a pair of pendants. And an only reason to stand on this side of this painting and look at it is if the pendant, the male letter writer, is over here. And you're standing between the two paintings. So that's how that, those two paintings are installed in this exhibition, which is contrary to the way they were installed in Dublin and Paris. So. But go play with that, because that's kind of fun, too. The other thing that I want to point out here, which I think is fascinating, was no, I, I don't know quite exactly what to make of it, but on these beautiful white walls, and so Metsu, I think, is looking very much at Vermeer, there are often little things, like up here, there's a nail with a shadow. Why on earth do you put a nail? The only reason you do that, I think, is to show irregularities at all, so that you convey the inf information to the viewer that this is, in fact, real. It's not paint. That this is a, a you know, it's plaster. There is, a, there is something three, you know, hard there that you hammer a nail into. But you have enough information that you need to have a shadow on it as well. I mean, you go, so what I'm saying, Go through the show, look at letters, look at dogs, look at, look at the shadows, look at the double shadows of, of light, look at nails on walls, I mean, you name it. There are all sorts of, find whatever it is you want to find, and then go, just go find signatures. I mean, I just went through with a family with two little kids the other day who had one look, spent an hour looking at signatures. It was so cool. <laughs> but let's go to Hasina because there are many paintings in the show, or a number of paintings, um, that actually focus on this, this lovely young woman. And they, these are three paintings. They come from three different groupings in the show. The, they're all around painted in the early to mid-1650s. And this is important because Gerard Terborg is really the older, one of the older, Terborg and Dow are the older of the artists in the show. And Terborg and Vermeer signed a document in 1654 in Delft um, at about the time that Vermeer was getting married. So whether Terborg and, Dow and Vermeer knew each other well enough that they, Terborg came to Delft for the wedding or for the marriage, it's not sure. But anyhow, it's interesting, the timing is such that you would, one might think that. So all these paintings were painted by that time. So they are the way Terborg was thinking at a time when Vermeer was still painting, or just the beginning of his career. Really, he really hadn't painted anything that we see in the exhibition. So there are points of reference that will come to play with Vermeer later on. So this is, to me, one of the most fascinating paintings of the show, in that it shows the young Hesina from the back, and we see her face in the reflection in a mirror. She has no clue we're in the room watching. And there's a kind of 
She's looking up at this lady who's come in, who's actually one of her sisters, and this is another brother, Moses Terborg. She's looking up, and what we are seeing, this wonderful fabric, which we all admire with what Terborg does, but we start to see the inner life of a figure in an indirect way, where all of her anxieties are somehow revealed. She is not putting on a good face for us at all. Something's happened. We're not sure what it is, but whatever it is, she is concerned, is worried. You can see that in her face, in the way Tabork has depicted it. So it is with Hesina that we start to see Tabork exploring the inner life of the human being, particularly young women. This, this is the sort of core of what uh, the Tabork story is all about. Then we see Hesina here getting ready to be dressed, dressing herself with her, with her maid servant in the morning in front of her bed. They're, these are both different types of beds that were in Dutch art, Dutch, Dutch culture. She is standing there looking into a mirror and, and fixing her bodice and standing very gracefully with this beautifully shimmering fabric, um, which is often seen in, in Tuborg's life. But this is a moment that nobody, no proper Dutch person would ever see in real life if you were not a family member. You are being taken into the inner sanctum of the home where you some see a lady getting ready before going out into public. So it is, again, this very personal side, exploring the psychology of, of, a, of a person inside that realm. Intimate, quiet, no drama, but just kind of taking you someplace you don't belong. And then you have the letter that we saw before. Her with her in front of her bed, probably then a love letter somehow, that the, the bed signifies, but the whole feeling, this intimacy of privacy, of innocence. There is a kind of sense of innocence in all of these that is really quite wonderful and endearing about Terborg and his depictions of Hesina. Now, Terborg and Hesina had different mothers, but they, they grew up together in Zvola, and then, uh, and then Terborg moves to Daventer, gets married in 1654, but they have a, this relationship stays very um, intimate. Now, we know a lot about Hesina because she, uh, well, first of all, her father, their father, taught them all. They had a family sort of um, artistic colony, as it were. And all, these, all these members of the families were artists, and they made drawings, drawings, drawings early on. And the father and Hesina saved these drawings. So there's a whole archive of Tabork drawings in the Rijksmuseum. And they've been beautifully published by um, Alison Kettering. And um, I owe this whole next part to Alison Kettering's book. Um, and what's interesting is that Hesina makes has a poetry album. She writes poetry. She's interested in the theater, in emblems, in poetry, and in um, and in her poetry album, and this you can't really read the text. It's, well, it's a Dutch to begin with, so probably, but most of it, I'm not going to read it. But here is an interesting. This is a little drawing. She makes drawings at the bottoms of her poetry, and this is a painting that we have on loan to us. It's in the Dutch cabinet galleries right now, 
that shows a, a loving relationship of, a, you know, sort of teasingly loving relationship of a, which is, turns to be a soldier and a young woman. And that painting is illustrated with some color changes by Hasina in a page that that is based on an old rhetoricer song or, or sort of drinking song and talks about the joy of wine in moderation and how it, wine in moderation, if you behave yourself, it is great because it kind of loosens the, the your restraint, your whatever you loosen and you um, yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's a done and done properly. It's great, and you can see this kind of loving relationship that you have uh, illustrated in this wonderful little painting by Tuborg that you can see in the Dutch cabinet galleries. Most of Gesina's poetry album, however, deals with another aspect of love, and that is the frustrations, the, uh, the difficulties and really in large part because women are so difficult. <laughs> she wrote this, I had nothing to say. This is, she wrote, I'm just quoting. <laughs> you can come in as a man and plead your case and you think you're getting someplace and sure enough, sooner or later, it's gonna all go for naught and you're gonna be left high and dry. This is a basic Petrarchan poetry that she takes over that is part of a literary tradition of the 17th century that she gets tru truly fixated on, fascinated with. This whole Petrarchan kind of ideal of how difficult it is for a male to, to feel any reward from these efforts to bring, um, is, to get anywhere with a woman basically is what. And so he illustrates these poems, and there are quite a few of them, almost inevitably with these little figures, with a woman seen from behind. Cold and aloof and not engaging at all. And so thinking about this, and I owe this in part to some of my students at University of Maryland, where I taught an undergraduate summer, and I came up with some wonderful papers, that this pose is right there in front of her eyes in this exhibition, in what's called the parental admonition, a very famous painting from the Rijksmuseum that has always been fascinating about what's going on. So it has many, many interpretations over the years, the parental admonition being the most famous, and that is that this is the father, that's the mother, and they are admonishing this young lady who is looking very meekly down. Um, others said, no, 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 he's too young to be the father, there's no way. Um, it's a proposal, and he's holding up a ring. And others say, no, no, he's not holding up a ring, but he's holding up a coin, which has a whole different connotation. Um, <clears throat> and that would be the procurus over there. And there's a bed in the background, so you have all this kind of association. So, but I am wondering if we are not actually seeing here, to a certain extent, how this guy is proposing or hoping that something good's gonna happen, but she, seen from behind, is gonna be that cold and aloof person that's gonna knock him down at some point or other. So things are not gonna end up well. That, I'm quite sure, is the case because his dog always knows what's going on. <laughs> Absolutely the case. I mean, there's no getting around it. 
And that's the guy's dog. That's not a little fluffy thing that the women hold. That is a guy's dog. He knows. Already walking out the door. <laughs> now, it's interesting. You see a, a scene like that, another sheet in this book, uh, this poetry album, is this fascinating? Nobody's ever talked about this sheet before, but this to me really is a very revealing sheet because what you have here is a group of people from David are sitting around being handed, served wine and at a little performance. This is a little play, a little tableau vivant of some type or other. I don't know exactly what, but my guess is that something like that is Terborg, Hesina may have set up something like that, and that was these kinds of scenes were being played out in this household that was so fascinated with theater and drama and, and all that, that these are two or three figures doing something along these lines. Another interesting, I find fascinating page in this sheet of this album is this page, which is a color chart with all these little hearts. And, and next to each of these hearts, this is the, the Dutch and this is the English translation, are emotions. And I want you to pick out just a couple. So um, white is this one here, and that's white is pureness. And here is blue, jealousy. And here is ash gray, sorrow and suffering. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, all the color, color, yellows and orange and all that, but just to, for the simplicity of, of today's talk, pick on those three, because there are, I never thought about the fact that the Terborg's fabrics, whites, were different colors. But here's our painting of the suitor's visit coming in the door with this lady with this beautiful chasina, actually, with this beautiful white gown. And then here is the parental admonition, the beautiful white gown. And if you look at those two whites, they're not the same white at all. White, one could be purity, and one could be ash gray, sorrow, which reinforces the whole concept of the woman seen from behind. So that way may well be color symbolism as part of the narrative that we need to think about as we walk through the show. What colors, what do they mean? So here you have this amazing, we saw this from the outside, the image from Detroit, this beautiful painting with a mirror. And the woman, there's a mirror, there's a page boy, little dog that's uh, there, of course, on the bed. And there is this fascinating woman who was standing there twirling a ring on her little finger. And her expression on her face has always been, look, she's not happy in any event. You know she's not happy. But if you think of that color chart saying blue, jealousy. Hmm. Hmm. Now, there were lots of different color theories in the 17th century, Van Mander, Hoogstraat, and other, but this is Chesina and Girard. I am quite sure that they were, I know they were sort of intimately connected and that the, you see color use in Gerard Terborgs that relates to the color symbolism of Cassina's poetry album, I think it's pretty hard to say, oh, well, that's irrelevant. I think that there is 
thought going in, always thought going into what you're going to display and how you're going to do it. The other thing that's sort of interesting with that dress and the gallery's painting <clears throat> is that Tribor is so famous for his fabrics, the, the, the sheen of satins and silks. And, and these materials, they are incredible. They, they shimmer in the light, they, and you know, you can assume that with every time a figure moves that those folds and, and light shimmerings are gonna change. There's no way you can, how, do, how does a guy paint it, you know, of, some, of a living figure? Well, what's particularly fascinating is that the dresses in both of these is, are exactly the same. Every, every fold, every shimmer, every, everything is the same. Now, I was going to hang them together when we had a Dvorak show side by side, and it turned out, to my amazement, that this, these dresses were not the same size. The, the Detroit painting's a third larger than the gallery's painting, or the figures are. So, in fact, there must have been a drawing he had. That, but a drawing, a, a, and many, I hope many of you saw the drawing for painting show that we had last year. There you saw a lot of preliminary drawings that artists would make, or Tabork would, would have made something like that. But he had a means to expand that drawing, not only, just to, not only to use it as a basis for the, that figure at that size, but also to make it larger. So that's also fascinating. But we know that Terborg's father, when Terborg was young, was going off to, to London, and he was going to go study with, uh, with his uncle, who was an artist in London. He said, in your trunk, I am putting a mannequin. So you could imagine Terborg would have draped a mannequin with fabric and would have made his drawing on the basis of that mannequin and then use that drawing for uh, a couple of purposes. So it's the, uh, this is also interesting part of the process. How do the artists make these works and how do they make them so real? I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's maybe part of the process of Tuborg. So with all of that amazing realism in the show, how do we deal with Vermeer? This is where I'm trying to get to at this point. So we start off the show with this wonderful comparison of the two lace makers. One, the Nicholas Maas from Dordrecht, artist who came from Dordrecht, painting from National Gallery. And these are, I think, fascinating in terms of the question of where does, how does Vermeer, how come we have difficulty dealing with Vermeer in the context that we were just describing? Difficulties may be the wrong word, but anyhow, we have to deal with them in different terms. And I think that's really evident here with Moss, and I'll, I'll try to go quickly on this one because it's sort of interesting, but I've talked about it before, so maybe some of you heard it, that Moss shows you a room where you see the, from a distance, you, you cross the, the counter from the lace maker who was there very busily engaged. It was an activity of great virtuous activity for the 17th century, but just to be sure you knew exactly what her place in the world was and where she stood, Moss gives you all sorts of information. He puts behind her a, a print of uh, Martin Luther, so she's a good Protestant. He has here a calendar so that you can see she takes care of time. She's responsible. Here's her money bag so that she is responsible for the financial well-being of the household. 
there is a key, which is also responsibility, and there are the bobbins that she's working with. Here's an inkwell, here's a ledger, so she's doing all, so all that information is provided to you. It's wonderful, you know exactly. The light's coming, you see all those things that we've been talking about in these other works. Vermeer, in this case, does something entirely different, that he brings you into her world. You are not in any way separated from her. You are brought in. So you're peering into her, watching her hands. You see that wonderful curl of her hair and the kind of sense of energy that she has, color, light. Think about the color symbolism of, of color and the kind of sense of hope and um, positiveness of, the, of yellow. And then you have in the foreground here, and this is really what I want to focus on, this amazing cushion. And out of that cushion flows the threads. And these threads literally flow. They're like waterfalls. They're kind of coming out of that. They are, there is nothing in the world realistic about it. You've got to understand this is nothing realistic. This is so alien to Herod Dow or to Borg or any of these other artists, it can't even be discussed in the same framework. And this, I really, this is what I want you to see. This is different. This is somebody thinking in different terms. And that's something that I think is important when you go through this, when you're trying to come to some sense of connection from here and these other artists that, yeah, there's a, there's a degree to which, sure, they all, there's a semblance of realism, but what does realism mean? And what does realism mean? Now, for Vermeer, I think the realism to a certain extent is an optical realism that's of a different order. So in order to look, get in there and look at that woman, you need to pass by the cushion. So he puts it out of focus. So just like your eye will not see things in focus at different points, he wants you to go right immediately there. So he takes, you out, takes it out of focus. And that may have something to do with the camera obscura question, which is a broader question I'm not, I do not want to get into. But if, if Vermeer is using the camera obscura, he is using it, but he's using it for selectively for optical purposes. He's not tracing. He's not doing any of that stuff. He is looking and thinking, how does that work? How does that camera obscura, which teaches you the laws of nature. As far as the 17th century is concerned, they taught you the laws of nature, and the law of nature tells you how you see. It's, it's all about teaching about optics and about the, that feeling. And that is, I'm going to leave it there. Okay, we're just, but we're thinking about the, the optical qualities that, that allow you to get into the painting. That's what he's exploring and exploiting in this work. So that's something that I think we can see over and over again. These are not dealt with in the same way. So with Taborg, Taborg is definitely at the basis of this painting by Vermeer. After all, it's on the same wall, right? <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it is definitely there. And so the, this, is, this was something that Vermeer would have known, this painting he would have known, he would have done all, the same thing, but he deals with it differently. And this is something else that I want, we mentioned this a little bit with the woman with the tuning the lute from the Met. That geometry. The geometry is the underlying geometry in Vermeer's paintings that does not exist with these other artists. So there's a fusion of science and math and optics and expression of realism that gets sort of entwined in, in Vermeer's work. So this painting on the back wall, once again, we have a flat 
background instead of a three-dimensional. We have, a, a, he focuses, the work focuses on the figure by throwing the rest of it in darkness. Vermeer allows that figure still to have prominence, even against a plain background because of the light wall, and, but this painting up there, which is of a musical instrument, is proportionally thought he thought careful about, carefully about the proportions of that painting. That painting is two-thirds the width of the painting, so that's two-thirds, one-third. That is one-third, one-third, one-third. There are proportional relationships that he is establishing in these works to give it a sort of classical sense of restraint and quietude and timelessness. It's a very different than that's, there are no turned over edges of books in Vermeer's. You want timeless, you're not wanting to see the activity of the moment. It's a whole different mentality that is going into these works. And, it's, and again, the abstractions are, this is why I really focus here on this painting at the moment. Um, the abstractions are amazing because here you have this incredibly beautiful yellow jacket with a ermine trim. But that is lead tin yellow, that, that is very thick, and, and Vermeer paints with impostos in that area to give that three-dimensional quality to that shoulder, to, to give you that thickness, the sense of light hitting it, and the kind of, the, the, the different folds and how that all works, and light hitting. But in fact, the only lead tin yellow in that whole jacket is here. That's all ochres. He is very selective of his use of paints and the kinds of paints because he knows optically that's all you need. That's all you need. And you need it thick because you want a sense of fabric, the texture and the density of the fabric. That's all you need. And your eyes are going to do the rest. He wants a rhythm, not only in the, the, the giving that structure, he wants a rhythm across the painting. So what does he do? He makes a fold here that none of you, I swear, none of you in this room could possibly make. You cannot do it. There's no way to fold cloth like that. You cannot do it, except if you're Vermeer. And then you do it, because that is a rhythm that he wants to repeat across the painting. That is exactly the shape of that arm and that hand. It's not real. It's not real. Vermeer moves someplace beyond that sense of realism to give you something that is more comprehensive in, in, in broader ways. You know? So it's, a, it's the same thing you see. So another painting, Turborg, Vermeer, relates, clearly relates. But here you have all these elements. We have much of the same elements here in the Vermeer, except they're not, right? They're not. One of the things that I was taught by my daughter-in-law K.K. Otterson, uh, when she was here, is, and I never noticed this at all, that why in, uh, on these, so she's looking, standing and looking in the mirror. Why in Dutch art are all the mirrors next to windows? And she said, well, of course they're there because light's coming through that shines on the face and they can see yourself in the mirror. Duh. I never, <laughs> it never occurred to me. It's sort of, Wonderful. So it sort of gives you a logic, and there is a logic to all these paintings, but there are choices that have been made. But what Vermeer has done he, here, if you just, you know, 
Look at body language. I mean, the difference of the body language is so svelte young woman, and here is a woman who stands poised in a way that is such that she will never move. Her hands are holding her, the ribbons of her necklace in a way that are, that are just there, caught in time forever. And it is that ever, foreverness that I think is so special about these paintings because they, they end up meaning something more than just getting dressed. I mean, it's, it is like some, like a priest with a Eucharist, or it is like the enunciating angel. There's something spiritual about this that comes from that timelessness, and that is in conjunction, obviously, with the light, the light coming in, the light, the wall, that emptiness of that wall as it spreads across and, 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 and enhances her net. So the whole center of this painting is empty, it, yet it's not. You know, it's filled with light. What an incredibly bold concept to do that, to stand behind. Again, you're separated. This is a quietude in the same way as the Met painting, but somehow a very deep, different spiritual realm. That sense of light is interesting here, and I, that Vermeer's light is never real either. It feels real. It feels like you see, you see shadow of the, of the mullion there. But look at what he does here. And if you go in the gallery, you can see this better. He has a white contour on the back of her. A white contour. That is totally illogical. There's no such thing as a white contour on the back of a shadowed woman. But that is something that he helps stand, help that figure stand out from that background. Spend time with these paintings. They want you to spend time with them. You've got to spend time. It's, a, it's an artist. You have to go slowly. Now, if you look at a technical study, this is infrared reflectography. And it's, I'm not going to explain what that is, but this is a way of seeing what an artist did blocking in. So Vermeer actually makes lots of changes, despite the simplicity of the, what his, his images look like. So here in the reflectogram, you can see, in fact, he had a map on the back wall. He had a lute on the chair. And you can see the tablecloth went way back here. You can see more of the floor, where you only have a little bit down. There are all these changes. So he is thinking about these effects. Do I want that map? No, I don't want that. I don't want anything interfering with that light coming across. I need that experience. The geographer and the astronomer. They are amazing paintings. They're, it's wonderful to have them together. They are the only positive male wall in the whole show, so I'm, I like that as well. The rest of the guys are getting drunker in brothels or wherever there's... Anyhow, they are incredible. They are interesting because they are the same concept of the women that we've been looking at. But there's a different activity level. It's sort of interesting to think about these paintings because there is a sense of the activity, intellectual engagement of these figures. It's, they are looking forward, they're engaging. The geographer is looking out the window, resting his hand on a book with the map next to him and the, the, the compass in his, his hand. He has a celestial, he has a terrestrial globe up here. There's a map on the back wall, but he is looking out, he is gauging, he is charting a course through life. And this is what these paintings are 
yes, astronomer and geographer, but they're more than that. What I was trying to get to here is they are aspects of, of knowledge that are related to each other. They're pendant paintings. They, are, they go together. And it's wonderful to have them together, one from Frankfurt, one from Louvre. They are hardly ever, ever together. So this is a very special time. So the, the astronomer here is looking and reaching toward a celestial globe. And he has an astrolabe uh, here on him. He has a book beside him. He has a, a chart of the heavens up here. He has a painting of the finding of Moses back there. There are things that all relate to, in fact, the metaphysical knowledge, spiritual knowledge, knowledge of, of intellectual intercourse. So this is different than the Tao astronomer who was there actively working in the night sky. This is a man of learning. He's thinking, here you have Ursa Major, and that's, that's the one that's in the brightest light. And in, so that's one of the, the constellations, and that constellation symbolically at that time for astronomy, and astronomy was connected to divine guidance. So this is a, this is a painting that has, can, both of them have connections to both the science and also God, and also the spiritual realm, the, the finding one's course through life, looking for, for divine guidance in our searches of the heavens. It's interesting that these matching globes were, were published in 1618 by Jodicus Hondius, who was a famous map maker in the 17th century. This is still relevant to those searches. Metaphysical knowledge and spiritual knowledge is still relevant. The globe, the terrestrial globe, is out of date. So that's put up there on the shelf. So, and, but that globe is facing a direction that the real globe has, it's the Indian Ocean, and in the, in the, there's text on that globe that says, this is soon gonna be out of date, really it does say that. So as you're traveling the world and exploring the world, send me information and I will update this. <laughs> this is important for commerce and for you know, understanding the world and also it has practical means and practical purposes. So that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in this, as opposed to the metaphysical. So there is in Vermeer, and I think this is a sort of roundabout way of getting to it, a fascination of how these paintings also relate to broader human spiritual concerns. That's why the, the woman with a pearl necklace has that feeling that there is something spiritual underlying. In this case, we can say for sure. We can say for sure. This is, in fact, interesting. This is a book on the table. That's the detail of the book, and that is the book that, it, that he's actually depicting, and it's, it's by a man by the name Metzius, and he wrote this book as a guide to studying the two types of globes, the terrestrial globe and the celestial globe. He also invented the astrolab, so, or, or improved upon the astrolab. So there is Vermeer with a book that an astronomer would definitely be looking at. He would have the globe that he's there. So it's interesting that these two paintings depict a figure who I'm quite certain is Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, who was a great microscopist of the age, but was also a geographer and astronomer. So he actually provided Vermeer with all of the apparatus that he was using in his painting. But to show how you cannot trust Vermeer broadly, in many ways, there's the painting of the finding of Moses in the back of the astronomer. And here's the same painting in the back of 
the great Vermeer from Dublin. So you can, he will change things, change the scale of objects, change the color, change all sorts of things in order to make the story the way he wants to get that geometry, get the way those, that figure works within the framework of, of the painting. When you go to this painting, look carefully at the incredible geometry, this knife edge folds on that lady's jacket. That has got nothing to do with reality. That is sort of this abstracted quality of color and light and shape that he does. Look at the way he does the darkest part of the wall here against the lightest part of her shoulder. The lightest part of the wall, the furthest away from the window, is way over here against the dark. So he's playing light against dark and dark against light. And then what do you have up here? A little hole in the wall like that nail in the mezzo. These are the kinds of things that I think you can find Go through the show and look at the way these artists play off light and dark and dark and light to create the certain visual drama of, of these figures. But I just want to end here with um, the great painting from the gallery, The Woman the Balance, which is, uh, whereas the, the geographer and astronomer have this metaphysical quality, this is a painting so beautifully conceived with natural light coming through the window, sweeping down, hitting the table, being caught by the arm and coming up to embrace the woman, just wonderful sweep of light. The way light comes in, hits that, goes behind the curtain, is light on the wall. The thickest part of the curtain is dark. Then you have this golden halo edge where it's just getting the edge of the curtain. It is beautiful the way he handles that, brings it around. But what this does embrace is not only the woman, but the painting on the back wall, The Last Judgment. So this is clearly a case where there is something theoretical between the painting on the wall and the activity of the woman who was holding scales, balances in her hands, that are, turned out to be empty. So she is actually thinking about her place in the world, knowing there's eventual last judgment, eventual judgment, and yet being part of a world that has temporal treasures, gold and pearls, as you have on the table. So this is a very theoretical painting. She, like the other figures we've looked at, will never move. There's no way, because her hand is right there at the juncture of the vertical and the horizontal of that picture frame. It is right there. This is one half the painting. So it's a, this, this, this line is exact center. She is in the exact, that hand is in the exact center. The perspective goes right to, to the, her little finger, everything. She cannot move even if she wanted to. There's no way. She's always there. So there's a sense of this permanence, this lasting quality of this figure that gives it a sense of dignity and importance and, and in, in every possible dimension. She is, I'm convinced everybody's going to ask that question, pregnant. Um, this, is, this has come up over and over again. I, I didn't think for many years she was pregnant, but uh, we've had communications about this recently, and it turns out uh, that the orange and yellow, I think, is very purposeful in Vermeer's putting it there. It is, I now have determined, an actually a depiction of Vermeer's wife. I'm not going to go into the whole arguments for that, but it is Vermeer's wife, as is, in fact, this woman. She's also Vermeer's wife. She is portrayed in those two paintings. 
and they had 11 kids or something like that, so the likelihood of them being pregnant is, is strong. Um, <laughs> one of the fascinating things of this painting, why in 1664, which is more or less when Vermeer painted, does he decide to paint this subject? It is not a subject you see in Dutch art. It's not as though Terborg does woman with a balance in front of a last judgment scene like that. And this is something that um, I'm very excited that actually also um, th if, with my discussions with my students at Maryland. 1664 was a year of the plague. It devastated much of the Netherlands, and many, many deaths in the Netherlands, in, in Amsterdam. Um, we had this beautiful painting by Jan de Bry of, the, of his double, double portrait of his father and mother. They died in the plague in 1664. Um, so it was a very serious concern. Um, so the, the idea of having a scene like this, if a woman's pregnant, and having the sense of less judgment, all that, the timing of that, to me, uh, explains so much about this painting. The other thing I'm going to leave you with tonight is the fact that, like the Tao we started with, um, this painting was in a box. It, when, when it was sold in 1669, there was a 1696, there was in a box. Um, it was the first. There was a group of 21 paintings being sold by Vermeer, and this is number one in that sale, and it was in a box, and that meant. As with the Tao, you had to come up and you had to open. So this is not a painting that you looked up, looked as as you passed by on a daily basis. This is a, this is a painting that you only spent time with when you really were at a point in your life that you could stop and reflect on what it all meant. That is the meaning underlying these paintings. That meaning, the sort of significance of these works with Vermeer that I think resonates with us so strongly today, even we have, don't have a box. We stand in front of this painting. We know somehow it's important. We know somehow something in that painting that will stick with me the rest of my life. These paintings do that to you. So enjoy them while they're here. This one will stay, fortunately, stay me. But enjoy that show. It is here until the 21st, and thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.